The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 20, The Picts. The story of the Picts is a mysterious story and one that exists strictly in the first millennium and one that exists in the modern country of Scotland. Originally, I stated that the Pictish people were Celtic in origin, although I must admit that this could be a little bit misleading as there is a school of thought to say that Pictish people occupied the British Isles before a Celtic wave of migration. Let me attempt to try and set the record straight. The Pictish people are referred to in medieval chronicles as people who occupied the far north of Scotland and spoke a Celtic language. The Pictish people are among several distinct ethnic groups of the British Isles who spoke a Celtic language. This means that there had to be a significant wave of Celtic migration to the British Isles before the arrival of the Romans and that whoever was occupying the lands of the British Isles before this Celtic migration are likely to have mixed with the migrants and produced those peoples that the Romans discovered. So logically, we know that Celtic cultures are highly likely to be in Pictish ancestry and the real argument ought to be that we don't know to what extent Celtic cultures affected the bloodlines of the peoples who we recognise as the eventual Picts. Celts and those ancestral to the Celts are thought to have originated in Central Europe during the second millennium BCE and over the course of the next thousand years Celts would spread out across the whole of Central Europe, from the modern country of Portugal in the west, all the way to the modern country of Bulgaria in the east. Celtic cultures of Middle Europe and much of the British Isles were consumed by both Romans and Germanic tribes during classical antiquity and the early Middle Ages but the northern and western reaches of the British Isles were able to resist these integrations, which is why Celtic culture was so well preserved and still valued by those societies to this day. When the Romans travelled to the British Isles, they would have discovered people who spoke Celtic languages. They would have been very different from the Latin languages of the Romans but we do know that Latin languages 
and Celtic languages are both Indo-European in origin. So there was a loose historical connection that had diversified long ago over many hundreds of years before the two language groups encountered each other again after a lot of language evolution. Scholars who study the Celtic languages of the ancient peoples of the British Isles can categorise their British Isles Celtic languages into two groups. One group of Celtic languages is called the P-Celtic and the other is called the Q-Celtic. There is contention between scholars over exactly which of these two branches of Celtic languages were spoken by the Picts. And that is probably because the peoples who we refer to as the Picts are written about by non-Pictish peoples such as the Romans and the Anglo-Saxons. Further to this, there is even suggestion that some inscriptions suggest non-Celtic language. So this could further support the theory that the Picts were not categorically descendants exclusively from Celts. So categorising the Picts is probably a very ambiguous project, with many different tribes in different areas of the northern British Isles over many centuries being referred to as Pictish, as we do not know any more detail of them. The distinguishing things about these people of the British Isles was the fact that they painted their faces and bodies with dyes. A distinctive colour noticed by foreign observers was the indigo shade extracted from the plant called Isatis tinctoria, more commonly called woad. Isidora the Archbishop of Seville, who lived across the 6th and 7th century, wrote in his work on the origins of peoples that the Picts actually tattooed the colours on their skins. The clothes and hair of the Picts were also dyed in bright colours, and they referred to themselves as the painted people. Now this is interesting because of the rather more well-known story of how the Picts got their name. It's because of the Romans. The Romans came across these painted people and called them the Picti. Picti has the same etymological root as the word picture, which is derived from the Latin word for painting. This is interesting because of where we believe the etymological origin of the name Britain comes from. The Romans called the British island Britannia, believed to have originated from the Celtic word Britanni, that could have been the Celtic way to describe themselves as painted ones. If the original P-Celtic word was Prunia, then the original Q-Celtic word was Crunia, and Crunia was the supposed name of the first Pictish king. The Picts, as the Romans called them, 
are the people described as occupying lands where the Romans had previously described as being home of the Caledoni people, which is really in the northern portion of Great Britain. And so the story of the Picts has a distinct group of the Celtic language-speaking residents of Britannia is the story of inhabitants of the modern country of Scotland. Agricola Gnaeus Julius Agricola was born in Gallia Narbonensis, which is in the modern country of France in the year 40, and would become an important official of the Roman Empire. Upon coming of age, he would be sent to Britain as a military official to learn more. So throughout his career, he would stay close to British politics and he would come and go throughout his life. In the year 79, Agricola would embark on a campaign of northern Britain. It was a very highly considered campaign with roads being laid down and forts being built. The Pictish people would have surely been among the Caledonian Confederacy reported to have opposed the Romans under Agricola at the Battle of Mons Graupius, in which the Romans scored a big victory. But with reports of Caledonians fleeing into the woods and disappearing from the Roman radar, the Romans would have to be satisfied with the military victory alone. The rugged terrain of Scotland just wasn't a place favourable for open battlefield conflict and so eliminating the Caledonians completely was going to be virtually impossible. The lowlands of modern Scotland were secured by the Romans under Agricola and the Pictish peoples would have been pushed further north into the highlands of Caledonia. Agricola's campaigns were deemed to be successful and he would be recalled in the year 85 and seemed to be going into a condition of retirement. Although he would end up dying at the young age of 53 in the year 93. Septimius Severus We know that throughout the 2nd century that the Romans were being conflict with those tribal societies of northern Britain and the legacy of those conflicts were preserved by the construction of Hadrian's Wall and the Antonine Wall, which were both designed to represent the northernmost border of the Roman Empire and a place by which they could look north and subdue the British tribes. However, when Septimius Severus became the Roman Emperor, he decided that Caledonia should be conquered and he would prepare an army of 40,000 people to get the job done. Both Hadrian's Wall and the Antonine Wall were re-fortified before Severus would endeavour to go one step further than Agricola and completely conquer the island. And although he was the Emperor, he would be doing it in person. The Romans marched into the Caledonian lands with purpose and although it was originally thought that the Roman fort of Carpal was built during this period, the beginning of the 3rd century, it is now actually thought that Carpal was originally a 2nd century construction that Severus 
recommissioned and improved. Carpal has been identified as a Pictish word. So Severus was able to establish himself as a viable threat to the modern Scottish lands, possibly on the verge of subjugating these lands of northern Britain in the same way as the Romans did to many modern English lands. However, there were rebellions among the natives before Severus would have to return south to the city of Eboracum, the modern city of York, due to illness. Severus actually died from this illness in the year 211, and his sons, who had accompanied him, were far more interested in going back to Rome to compete for the Roman throne than they were in fighting Caledonians. Historians suspect that during the later years of Roman occupation of Britain that the Romans considered people to be more Pictish the further north in Great Britain they lived, almost as if the term Pictish was synonymous with uncivilised. So people who lived near York, for example, would be more Pictish than people who lived in London. This would not necessarily mean that they were directly related to the people that the Romans referred to as Picti when they first arrived. The people who lived in the region of the Antonine Wall much further north were called the Maitai Tribal Confederation, which could be synonymous with what we consider to be the Southern Picts, whereas the people in the far north of the island were wholly barbarian and possibly tattooed and frighteningly naked Picts, although northern Scottish chilly climate would suggest that a completely naked lifestyle would be difficult to sustain. The Roman Emperor Diocletianus, anglicised as Diocletian, created a tetrarchy in the 280s where the Roman Empire would be ruled by multiple emperors. The emperor in charge of the British territories, among others, was a man called Constantius Chlorus, who celebrated victories against people who he described as Picts, though this may also just be a reference to anyone north of the Roman-held territories. After Constantius Chlorus died in York in 306, his son took over his lands and he would eventually be known to history as Constantine the Great, and it appears that he had to subdue those Pictish societies too. The End of the Romans The non-Roman peoples of the British Isles did nothing to document their history, and so we have to rely on the Romans to tell us anything about the indigenous people. The longer that the Romans occupied Great Britain, the more that they understood the people of Great Britain. By the 4th century, the peoples who lived alongside the border of Roman Britain had got somewhat used to living on a Roman border close to Roman people, because it's also all that they ever knew in their lifetimes. To them, having Roman neighbours was quite normal. However, in the far north of the island were the Celtic-speaking Britons who didn't have any real relationship with the Romans and just saw them as an aggressive threat, and these people would include the Picts. Now, we also have to be speculative 
about who was a Pict and whether societies were integrating into and out of Pictish ethnicity. But we believe that we can generally consider the Picts to be those societies in the far north of Scotland by this time and that they were the ones who resisted Roman integration longer than most other non-Roman societies of Great Britain. The Picts were generally much more of a concept, largely linked by a similar language, so we mustn't think of them as a nation-state, but as a group of tribal societies with cultural links such as their language. Eumenius, the Roman scribe, referenced the Picti in his writings late in the 3rd century and also referenced the Hiberni, who were believed to have originated in Ireland and were likely ancestral or synonymous with the Scotti, who would migrate across the Irish Sea to Scottish lands during the first millennium. These outlying Celtic language speakers who had not become accustomed to Roman presence and culture on the British Isles, appear to have frequently challenged the Romans and the intensity and solidarity of these societies appeared to intensify during the 4th century with repeated allied attacks from the Picti and the Scotti. Saxon pirates were seafarers from Germanic lands who were raiding the lands of the North Sea and the English Channel but they were certainly no friends of the Romans either. Despite the familiarity between the Romans and the Maitai, or the British barbarians on their borders as we could otherwise refer to them, the Romans could never completely trust their neighbours, and things would only become worse as the 4th century continued, and Roman power in Britain began to wane. It appears that anti-Roman alliances were commonplace, with Picts allying with Irish tribes and also with Germanic tribes across the seas, such as the Saxons and the Franks. The Romans in Britain were in constant fear of conspiracies against them and would attempt to use subterfuge and espionage to stay one step ahead of their enemies. Going into the 5th century, the Romans had to recall all of their resources to defend their continental interests. And this meant that because the north of Great Britain was pretty much on the extremities of the Roman Empire, that these lands were among the first to be abandoned. So the Roman threat to Pictish lands gradually diminished and eventually disappeared. Christianity The Roman legacy of Britain includes the encouragement of writing, especially the recording of events, and how this could immortalise culture to inspire the culture to prosper, with those who referred to the writing as a means to understand and take pride in their own identity. It is thanks to those writings that we can even have some form of story about the Picts, as we see points of reference dotted around in the first millennium British and Irish annals and chronicles. Pictish king lists exist, although many historians would suggest that the earliest records refer to mythological kings only, such as Cruinia, mentioned as the first Pictish king earlier in the episode. 
Also, we find that some sources mention alternative names for particular time periods, which supports a theory of there being multiple kings from multiple tribes or societies, which further supports the notion of there not being a united Pictish nation of people, but more likely numerous Pictish societies acting as a confederation if it suited them to do so. One of the Pictish kings mentioned in first millennium scriptures is a man called Bride. Bride was a Pictish king and likely to be of a proportion of Pictish people who ruled at the same time as other Pictish kings over other societies of Pictish peoples. Bride is believed to have received his crown in a patrilineal manner, so after the death of his father. But Bride's reign was significant because we believe that this was during a very important period of British history. Christian missionary work in the British Isles had been going on certainly during the 5th century BCE, with the work of St Patrick being iconic of this. King Bride was alive during the lifetime of Columba. Columba was ordained in 551 and Bride became a Pictish king in 554. Bride's kingdom was based around the town of Inverness in the north of the modern country of Scotland and Columba reached Inverness while touring the Scottish lands carrying out his missionary work. When he met Bride, he successfully converted him to Christianity and the Pictish people of the kingdom dutifully followed their king. So these Picts were now a Christian society. From this point onwards into the 7th century, there is a strong reference to Christian monks living among and working alongside Pictish societies peacefully. The Christian Church of Scottish lands took on a distinctly insular Celtic character which distinguished it in its style. When we refer to insular Celtic, we refer to the Celtic cultures centred on the British Isles. The Celtic Christian Church sometimes called the Insular Christian Church, was a humble church where monks lived in poverty alongside their wives, which is unlike some of the chaste traditions of other Christian society monasteries. The churches and chapels were small, and the apparent absence of a modern secular society structure in Pictish lands was echoed by the church, who did not have the kind of parish structure that we may be more familiar with in more civilised Christian societies. Societies of the British Isles The political makeup of the British Isles was ever-changing during the first millennium and it can be difficult to distinguish societies due to the fluid movement and integration of peoples so we have to go against our instincts to categorise everyone and everything and remember that these societies did not have a modern structure with borders and identities like modern nations we know today. 
However, through language and culture, you can describe roughly what was going on. The Picts may have spoken an earlier form of language before it was influenced by the Goidelic language speaking people of Ireland, such as the Scotty who were migrating into western isles of Scotland and the western coasts of the modern country of Scotland. In the lands of the modern country of England, Germanic peoples, who are historically referred to as Anglo-Saxons, had landed and colonised the lands and had started to spread out their range of influence. So the modern lands of Scotland were starting to become distinguishable according to the cultures that were settling the lands. So let's have a quick tour of 7th century Scotland. In the far north were the Picts, living in the lands often referred to as Pictland. The lands of the Picts could be broken down further into smaller societies, but it doesn't serve us well at this stage to try and further describe it. To the west was the kingdom of Dalriada, which covers the lands of the sea to the west of Scotland, including coastal lands, the Western Isles, and lands in the north of Ireland, which was the home of the migrating Scotty, who are people we just mentioned. In the lands of the southwest were the Britonic-speaking Britons of the kingdom of Strathclyde, and in the southeast were the peoples who had migrated northwards and established the kingdom of Northumbria, inhabited by Angles. The Northumbrians were by far the most powerful of all of the kingdoms, and the others were to some degree subservient to them. Now we briefly mentioned how the Celtic Catholic Church differed in its traditions from the Roman Catholic Church, and there was a king of Northumbria called Oswiu, who famously declared that Northumbria would honour the Roman Catholic dates for Easter over the Celtic suggestion. And this decision was made at the famed Synod of Whitby. Oswiu was quite a powerful monarch, so it was a bit of a blow when he died in 670. But he was succeeded as the king of Northumbria by his son, Ecfrith. It would not take long for the Picts to try their luck against the fresh king, and they invaded in 671. The Northumbrians would be equal to the threat, but this would not prevent the Picts from being a continuous pest at the Northumbrians' northern borders. The culmination of this situation was at the Battle of Dunnechton, where the Picts, led by their king Bride III, lured the Northumbrian army, led by King Ecfrith, into a battle where the exact location remains unknown. However, we do know that the Picts scored an important victory and King Ecfrith of Northumbria was killed. Not only could the Picts now escape from the hegemony of the Northumbrians, but the kingdoms of Strathclyde and Dalriada could also escape the overbearing Northumbrians 
who would not try to expand northwards again. Both Pickland and Dauriada would actually follow the Northumbrian lead into the Roman Catholic traditions, leaving behind the Celtic Catholic. Annals refer to an 8th century Pictish king called Oingus, who took the throne sometime at the end of the 720s or the beginning of the 730s. Oingus's reign was significant because he was able to take control of the lands of Dauriada, putting the Scots of Dauriada under Pictish rule. Some claim that Oingus himself had some Scottish blood, which meant that a takeover of Dauriada may have been somewhat acceptable to the Scots. But there is evidence that Dauriada was somewhat disjointed, with a lack of cohesion which Oingus took advantage of, pillaging the kingdom of its wealth. Although Oingus had created an understanding with the Northumbrians early in his reign, when King Edbert became the king, he was concerned with the growing power of King Oingus of Pictland. Fortunately for Oingus, the new frosty relationship between Pictland and Northumbria really didn't escalate much beyond cross-border raiding, which is typical behaviour of the medieval societies of northern Britain. King Oingus would turn his attention to the kingdom of Strathclyde, but he would find that despite his successes in expanding the power and influence of the Picts, that Strathclyde would be able to defend themselves quite capably against Oingus's aggressions. One source I read suggested that Oingus was able to subjugate Strathclyde, but others suggest that it was a change in fortune for Oingus. His brother was killed in battle against the Britons of Strathclyde, and King Edbert of Northumbria formed a new alliance with Oingus, which may have been motivated by the strengthening of their neighbours. There is also evidence of an uprising against Oingus in Dauriada. So in the final years of Oingus's reign, there is still no doubt that Pictland was the dominant force of Scottish lands, and there is no doubt that Oingus influenced his neighbouring kingdoms and societies, but Pictish domination did not extend much beyond his lifetime. Norsemen When you talk about the British Isles towards the end of the first millennium, you cannot avoid talking about Norse invasions. Not only had Northumbria been subdued by its neighbours, but now it was facing invasion from the sea, and this would surely have been good for the Picts and the Scots, who would have been looking to profit from the misfortune of the Northumbrians. However, the first Viking invasion of Northumbria in 793 would have sent shockwaves throughout Great Britain, as societies would have slowly realised the sheer magnitude of the threat to everybody after the Vikings heartlessly destroyed the religious community at Lindisfarne. It was a true massacre, with the church destroyed and the residents of the monastery slaughtered. 
the Vikings were quick to raid and occupy the islands around northern Britain. No mercy was given to anyone, and all valuables were plundered, whether sacred or not. The Shetlands, the Orkneys, the Hebrides, the Western Isles, and the Isle of Man were all taken by the Vikings. And this was not a welcome act for the Scots of Dalriada, especially when the Vikings started landing in their land of origin, Ireland. This would give them a power base in the British Isles, and the Vikings were now here to stay. All of the British kingdoms would now have the threat of the Norsemen on their doorstep. Strathclyde looked out to the Viking-occupied lands. The Scots of Dalriada were confined to their mainland possessions, and the Pictish kingdoms had occupied islands to the west and the north. This is what brought the Picts and the Scots into a union. The actual nature of the union remains unknown, but we can be sure that the mainland societies were very concerned about the Viking presence and knew that they would need to stick together to deal with it. Early in the 9th century, a man named Alpin was the king of Dalriada, and he consolidated the union between the Scots and the Picts by marrying a Pictish princess. They would have a son, and that son would become a major icon of Scottish history. His name was Kinaid, the son of Alpin, and so his name comes down to us today somewhat anglicised as Kenneth MacAlpin. Kinaid may have become the king of Dalriada in around 841, when his father, Alpin, died. It is possible that the Pictish throne could have been matrilineal, and that could explain how Kinaid would have qualified to have been the Pictish king also. There is a chronicle that describes Viking invasions of Pictland, but it suggests that it wasn't necessarily Vikings from modern Norwegian lands, but possibly Danish pirates. The chronicle describes how many Picts were slaughtered. Now with Kinneth likely considering himself of Scots origin as opposed to Pictish, there is suspicion of Kinneth marching from Dalriada to Pictland and taking the Pictish throne without much opposition. There is suspicion of a battle where Kinneth killed many Picts, but this could have just been Kinneth battling against local earls who were rivals for the Pictish throne. What happened next is something that puzzles historians to this very day. It seems that during the reign of Kinneth MacAlpine that the annals and chronicles fall somewhat silent about events from 844. And then when the stories re-emerge, describing the later years of Kinneth's reign, there is no mention of the Picts. There is no mention of the Picts ever again. 
the Picts totally disappeared in the middle of the 9th century. Legacy. So what happened to the Picts? Well, in my opinion, I simply believe that they were absorbed into the kingdom of Kinnaid MacAlpin. And due to the aggressions of the Vikings venturing into Caithness in the far north, those Pictish peoples that were left were probably squashed into the area of Murray. If Kinnaid MacAlpin did kill the rival earls, then the culture of the Picts may have been compromised, as there was a Pictish aristocracy ruling over classes of agricultural peasants and slaves. The peasants and slaves would have had little influence over their destiny, with the aristocracy put down by the Scottish king Kinnaid, and so Pictish culture would have simply been diluted down to nothing and simply became part of an amalgamated kingdom of Scots and Picts, which would be the embryo of the modern country of Scotland. The mystery of the Picts is further accentuated by around 200 incised stone slabs that date between the 4th and 7th centuries and have been found in the east of Scotland, in an area undoubtedly Pictish. We described how the Picts became Christianised, and the later stones definitely relate to the Christian culture of the Picts. The earlier ones were before the Christianisation of the Picts, and these are the most mysterious, with strange imagery of humans and animals which appear to be distinct to Pictish culture, with nothing else quite like it discovered elsewhere in the British Isles. Pictish place names are very distinguishable. One of the easily recognisable place name prefixes is Pit, as in the town name Pitlochry, and is often referenced as characteristic of Pictish town names. However, a more interesting Pictish prefix is Abba, as in the town Aberdeen. Abba means river and can be compared to the Abba used in Welsh town names such as Aberystwyth, which points towards the Celtic language connection. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the subject of the Picts. Now, as a lot of you who follow the podcast will already be aware that the Picts episode was originally uh, written and uh, performed in the year 2020. Now, we've got through to that point in the story of the entire podcast series where the Pictish story fits in nicely with what we're leading into with the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings. And um, certainly um, the Pictish episode, um, I felt maybe needed a little bit of uh, of updating since its original uh, publication. And so it's my pleasure to uh, give you that uh, that new episode, that new Pictish episode. And I, I hopefully we've, 
uh, given some, a little bit more substance to all of the stories of the Picts. It's a, such a, a mysterious society that it's uh, it can be incredibly hard to write about it and um, you know have any kind of accuracy, any any kind of confidence that that the story is is correct. So certainly an enjoyable subject don't get me wrong i've very much enjoyed studying and writing about it but there it is the picts um it was originally um a an episode that was commissioned by a member of the history of the world podcast the illuminati and part of the reward system for history of the world podcast the illuminati members is that they can commission uh episodes of their choice and uh, I know that uh, one or two of you uh, have episodes in the pipeline and uh, have made suggestions. I'll tell you a little bit more about the plans for those a little bit later on. The Ancient World Cup Well, as we know, the Ancient World Cup was suspended for a week while we take a bit of a breath before the knockout rounds. We've already reduced the field size from 64 to 32 and now we go into the knockout stages and um, we have our first knockout match but before that I mean this last week we did put out something to ask you what your opinions were because we know the knockout brackets now the, the knockout brackets have been drawn and we wanted to know who you thought may reach the final and um, who you thought may go on to win it. And um, it does seem that, that people are predicting uh, it could be a final between the ancient Egyptians and the Romans. And um, whilst that is certainly a possibility, there are still 30 other teams remaining and we have to therefore go through the process of knocking them out one by one. So next week, is the first knockout match of the Ancient World Cup and uh, it will be uh, the round of 32. So we're not including, obviously, the the uh, the playoff matches, but these are the first proper official knockout matches now. Uh, the round of 32, next week, match number one, will have the Gauls versus the Macedonians. So with the Gauls, we're talking about the the societies that Julius Caesar had to eventually come along and conquer after sort of years of, uh, of, of aggressions against the Romans' northern borders. Uh, the Gauls held out until Julius Caesar managed uh, to overcome them. The Gauls, of course, uh, probably one of the more well-known Gauls was uh, Vercingetorix um, at the Battle of Elysia. And um, their opponents and the Macedonians, probably made most famous by um, the exploits of uh, King Philip II and his son, the King Alexander the Great, who suddenly, uh, in, in no time at all, built this vast empire stretching from Greek lands all the way over to the Indus Valley. Quite incredible achievement. So uh, the Gauls versus the Macedonians, that is next week's World Cup match, the first knockout match um, of 
the round of 32 and the first of 16 matches uh, coming over the next 16 weeks. Listener messages and reviews. So if you want to support the podcast, you can. You can support this wonderful project. Um, The best way to support it is through the Patreon page. And you can find that page by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. It's it's that simple. That's the name of the website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. And uh, clicking on the Patreon link there, you can sign up to make a monthly contribution and become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And uh, when you do, you qualify for rewards over time. Um, the uh, the new members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week are Deborah Kaminsky, Kevin Lewis, Emily Powers, Brad Massey and Kat. I'd like to thank you all personally for your wonderful uh, generosity in uh, in contributing towards the project and, and, and you really do make a difference to the project when you contribute. It enables me to invest in large numbers of reading material in order to make the most authentic podcast that I can possibly make and also um, you enable me to uh, invest in equipment so uh, some of you may have noticed that the sound quality is slightly different this week and that's because I've been able to invest in some new recording equipment thanks to the generosity of History of the World podcast Illuminati members. Now and one one thing that you can qualify for, if you accumulate enough donations over any amount of time, um, you can commission your own uh, special episode of the podcast. And as uh, you may already be aware, this week's episode, The Picts, started out as a special episode a couple of years ago. It was commissioned by Nick Barksdale of the YouTube channel, The Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. He... Uh, kindly uh, suggested that we do a podcast episode on the Picts, and we did that. Well, I've got some more news for you. Eric Young has uh, has been in touch with the podcast, very keen to know when his episode will be published. He wants to know more about medieval weaponry, um, with a particular focus on uh, weapons not related to gunpowder. So. We're going to be looking at that and um, it fits in so well with the current narrative that I believe that we should make it uh, directly an episode of this volume four. And I believe, Eric, that it will probably be around episode 32. I might be mistaken. I might be one or two either side, but I believe that it should be around episode 32. We're going to discover more about the global medieval weaponry systems Um also, um, we had a another member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, a good friend of the podcast, uh, Nick Kabilafkas, uh, who has asked that we concentrate some effort on the African Khoisan uh, culture, um, who are very, um, let's say, that they haven't evolved um as much over time as many other societies. So they've very much kept hold of their Neolithic uh, traits and, and have not been um, have not been conquered by anyone else. 
and um, the Khoisan um, have, uh, yeah, they've they've retained this amazing culture, and they've got this um, the clicking language. They, as as Nick himself describes it, is a clicking language, uh, which is very strange to listen to when you listen to the to them do that. But um, I think it's a fantastic episode um, suggestion, and and um, Nick, I'll I'll come back to you. I should I should imagine that we will. Um, concentrate our efforts on that later on in the year so uh, a couple of special episodes in the pipeline to look forward to now Gemma Ryan was kind enough to write in this week and say uh, hi Chris I wanted to let you know that I've recently found your fantastic and interesting podcast I've just finished listening to volume one and have learned so much about the prehistoric era of which I was previously unaware or only had a vague idea about. I'm very much looking forward to listening to Volume 2, as I have had an interest in the ancient world since I was in primary school. Thank you very much for seeing the need for such a podcast and then taking on the challenge of meeting that need, especially in such an entertaining, well-structured, informative and easy-to-listen way. Um, I can't wait to keep listening and thank you once again. Kind regards, Gemma Ryan from Ballarat, Victoria, Australia. Thank you very much, Gemma, and thank you for sending that wonderful message all the way from Australia. Thank you so much. Well, next week's episode will be about the Anglo-Saxons. So we'll be finding out more about what actually happened to the entire uh, island of Great Britain after the Romans left in the year 410. So we've already discussed the Picts, but what was going on in the lands of the South, in the lands of what would become the modern country of England? Uh, We'll find out next week. Uh, Until then, thanks very much for listening this week, and uh, don't forget, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.